the boomer fantasy of wage spirals, the failed states of America, and good news on Queensland coal. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and I am on day nine of my COVID adventure. I am joined here at home by the great, the glorious, <laughs> the also COVID-riddled... I can't handle this anymore! <laughs> best-selling author of QAnon and On, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, still available on bestseller lists right around the country, is Van Bottom. How are you, Van? Well, as you know, Ben, because we've been trapped in this house for 300,000 years, I am still suffering from the effects of coronavirus. And you and I have had this discussion numerous times that we're aware of the fact that if we were not vaccinated within an inch of our lives, we would at least be in hospital and probably dead. Yes, it, listeners, it has been a pretty awful experience, I have to say. We, we've been pretty unwell and... Uh, Apologies to anyone listening who is looking for last Sunday's weekend wrap. Neither of us were up to doing it. Quite frankly, we were both just so sick when we dialed. It was really a really rough kind of week and still coming out of it. We want to do a shout out to our friends and neighbours who have done things like delivered chocolates to our house, uh, made food for us, including pies, which is kind of awesome, really. Walked our dog picked up medication, there is literally no way we would have been able to get through this without the support of our friends and neighbours. And it's just, it's horrific. Like, Ben and I are, you know, pretty healthy people usually, and thank God we are pro-vaccine fanatics because we're a wreck. The two of us, I'm so sleepy and my concentration span is that of a biscuit. It's... It's an important reminder to all of us that COVID hasn't gone away. In <sighs> fact, last time we spoke about COVID on this uh, show van, hospitalizations made up 5% of all hospital beds in Australia. That number has gone up to 5.2, reported in today's Guardian. Uh, it is an increasing problem, an increasing levels of infection, increasing hospitalizations, increasing deaths again, variations on the rise again. You know, it's just interesting to see. Obviously, I'm no longer in isolation and was able to go to the shops today for the first time in what feels like a very long time. But I didn't see a single other person wearing a mask. I know lots of people have stopped wearing masks because it's no longer mandated. I would encourage you when you are in public, and obviously in the middle of the day, there's often older people, people who are at higher risk, not wearing masks, they, if they're exposed to COVID, if they if they were as sick as we were, we were very, very sick. And thankfully, we did have friends and neighbours who were able to help us and we were able to stay hydrated and able to get medication, all those things. Uh, do check in on your friends and neighbours. If you know someone who gets sick, whether it's COVID or the flu, make sure you look out for each other because it is, it is a potentially very dangerous time. More people are dying. COVID is now the leading cause of death in Australia and it is – Quite a scary time for a lot of people. I know a lot of people who are uh, at high risk are quite worried about what the future holds. So wear a mask. Do the simple things. Yeah, do all the things. Seriously, do all the things. I can't. My regret that that in any way I was put in a position to catch the virus is overwhelming because I feel terrible now and 
you know, people know that Ben and I have portfolio careers, which means that we work as subcontractors for a number of clients and I'm cancelling work because I physically cannot, physically cannot do it. And that's despite me doing fancy pants, bourgeois, middle-class work from home. Yeah. I don't have the energy. The fatigue is terrible. And I was warned, like people told me that it would be this bad, but we have friends who've raced back to work and paid a terrible penalty for going back to work too early. Yeah, we just got a message just before from a friend whose husband went back to work after isolation and pushed himself and has now been sick for another week already and is probably going to miss more days of work. Uh, so, you know, that's an, it's a good segue into our first story, Van, because the topic of work and wages is really at the forefront of the Australian uh, debate at the moment here in this country. Of course, with the election of a Labor government, We've had the 5.2% increase in the minimum wage and I think it was 4.6% to award wages uh, above that. We've seen a whole variety of misinformation statements thrown about. We've seen some business lobbyists go absolutely bananas. We've seen all sorts of claims thrown about. And it's, it's uh, it's really hard to cut through to what's actually true, isn't it? It is actually difficult to cut through to what's true because things are being reported in mainstream news outlets, mastheads, legacy mastheads that should know better that that is incorrect information. And specifically we're talking about there's been some reporting that Philip Lowe, who's the head of the Reserve Bank, has been out crusading to lower worker wages. Turns out that's not entirely true. And it was also reported that Sally McManus had okay boomed him, which was also not true, Ben. Yeah, because there's some nuance here that I think is really important because News Corp uh, and, and I've no way. It was News yeah, Corp. Yeah, News.com. Gosh, I'm so I'm so surprised a Murdoch owned newspaper has been involved in the spreading of a political mistruth. Well they've they've verbaled um the Reserve Bank Governor, uh, Dr. Lowe, and said, this is what he's this is what they quoted, uh, that he wanted wage growth capped at 3.5%. Now what he actually said, and this is the quote from the ABC, um, three and a half percent is kind of the anchoring point that I want people to keep in mind. Now there's a big difference between having an anchoring point around which wages will grow sometimes faster, sometimes slower, but that's the point at which the Reserve Bank believes wages should grow if they're going to meet their 2 to 3% inflation target on an ongoing basis, right? These are obviously not ongoing times at the moment. But, of course, this has prompted lots of discussion and Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement, uh, secretary of the ACTU, um, again, News Corp, and this is a quote from them, accused Dr Lowe of living in boomer fantasy land. Now, that's not entirely what Sally McManus actually said because what Sally McManus actually said was much more complex. She said, and this is a quote, I know that board doesn't have anyone who participates in negotiations for wages or the wage setting systems from the worker's side, which, by the way, is totally true. She goes on to say, and that's a pretty big problem if you're, you know, making assumptions or trying to understand trying to analyse how things work. We're not achieving 3.5%, let alone 5%, let alone 7%. And so to think somehow that the system is going to deliver across the board pay increases of 5 or 7% is boomer fantasy land. 
not realising that the whole system would be incapable of delivering that. We do not have centralised bargaining in this country. It would not be possible for that to happen. Even the Reserve Bank Governor is saying it's fair enough this year or this catch-up for what happened during COVID. So there's a nuance here that obviously gets lost in the desire for a combative headline. Now, don't get me wrong, there's plenty of room for combat in the wages space, right? The history of all hitherto existing society is actually the history of class struggle. Did you know? I'm just paraphrasing Adam <laughs> Smith, of course, but we can talk about that later. But it is it is interesting, right? Because the the desire to say that the RBA governor has called for a cap on wages when he hasn't came out of the AFR, came out of the Oz, came out of no way the AFR as well. Yeah, all of the bosses' papers, the business media. <laughs> I am shocked. Well, and again, like even today, one of the one of the members of the Reserve Bank board, Ian Harper, who's the dean of Melbourne Business School, um, which full disclosure, I am an alumni of, uh, not when he was dean, but there you go. Uh, and he's a former Howard. A government appointee to the old Fair Pay Commission. No way. He, he has said, and I quote, Sally McManus is quite right to point out, to point that out as an experience in the past. It is a boomer experience to suggest that a minimum wage increase is going to automatically flow through to everybody in the economy. You know, These people have literally missed everything that happened from the election of John Howard. Yeah, they really have. They really, like they, they're basically trying to say that, the the wage price spiral, the dreaded wage price spiral, uh, is happening already. And of course, we know it's not happening. Like wage growth, as a proportion of GDP, is the lowest it's ever been. Profits are the highest proportion of GDP they've ever been. I know nobody on their side is saying, "Hey, maybe we should have some pay restraint around executive salaries and bonuses." Well, absolutely right. That's not happening, is it? No, there hasn't been any of that. How very conspicuous. And in fact, if you if you've been paying attention, you'll have noticed the 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 very small window of time during COVID when perhaps executives were being restrained in how much they were being paid, that is well and truly passed. Uh, and all you need to do is look at uh, Alan Joyce buying a twenty million dollar Harborside mansion to realise that the era of pay restraint amongst executives in this country is over, regardless of the state of their company uh, or the state of the the, uh, clients that they serve. One could almost get the redecorating done with upholstery made from the skins of destroyed baggage handlers. That is a grim, grim concept. We do not endorse the skinning of uh, uh, unlawfully sacked workers here, but we will point out that Alan Joyce has unlawfully sacked 2,000 baggage handlers, uh, and uncoincidentally, there is a crisis in baggage handling at Qantas. No way. Absolutely. And it goes to the point that Salomon Manus is actually been trying to make, right? And that is that there is a crisis in this country around worker power. There is a, there is a lack of systemic mechanisms that empower workers to collectively bargain 
to lift their wages. There's a problem with representation. There's a problem with inclusion. There's a problem with any kind of economic planning from establishment economic forces around actually enfranchising workers, which is what they wanted. They wanted to disempower workers, smash their unions, suppress their wages. This is why the business community were totally on board with the neoliberal project to destroy any kind of mechanism that might, dare I say it, regulate the behaviour of the market. And this is what they've ended up with. Total chaos. Well done, guys. Thumbs up. And, of course, we know the numbers bear out (sighs) that union members do get paid more. If you are in a union, you are earning 32% more than somebody who does the same job but not in a union. The gender pay gap is less if you're in a union. So the gender pay gap is about a dollar for for women to men uh, for union members, but it's $2.70 for non-union members, and union members earn up to about $600 a week more in some, some industries, which is huge, right? And you can see why some business lobbyists would go, we have to break unionism. We have to discourage people from joining unions. We have to get rid of collective bargaining. Uh, and this, by the way, is a really good time, if you're listening to this show, to jump online. And join a union. Absolutely. Australianunions.org.au slash wow. You can join online right now, anytime, day or night. It's a good time of year to do it too because, of course, it is uh, it is tax deductible, as you like to remind people of that. Absolutely. Trade union membership is a tax deduction. <coughs> You know, if and now it's the end of financial year, join. This is general and in no way personal financial advice. You should always seek uh, proper financial this advice. This is not financial advice. Before making- This is absolutely political advice. <laughs> join a union. That's right. That's right. And, look, it is, it is going to be an interesting few months of debate on wages. Because we know that the Skills and Employment Summit is coming up in September, October. There is this clear uh, need to fix the way bargaining works in this country, and that is workers coming together to collectively negotiate paying conditions. We know that the vast majority of Australians are no longer covered by a collective agreement. Uh, There is an increasing rise in the gig economy, so much so that we saw, I think it was today, the Transport Workers Union is setting up a sort of third stream negotiation with Uber to try and get people some minimum terms and conditions. There was some hilarious reporting about this, saying that that Uber wasn't entering into this discussion with the TWU just because the government had a gun to its head. It was doing it very voluntarily and in the spirit of collaboration and compromise and working together. And it was it was a lovely sentiment, I've got to say. Good on you. That's the first time I've ever said anything um, remotely positive about Uber, which I have, of course, boycotted because, yeah. you know, they are – Cancer on capitalism, and like most poll, is can is capitalism inherently cancerous? I think so. But Uber are particularly bad, and the extension of Uberization, something campaigned for 
by our friends, the Greens in the Parliament, which disgusts me. Um, I've got to say, it, it is progress that the TWU has been able to get them to the table. It'll be very interesting to see what happens from this point. Yeah, and I think it is interesting to see that people are increasingly conscious that technology, you know, 21st century technology shouldn't be matched with 18th century uh, wages and conditions. And that's what- Been the experience in the United States of America. Yeah. From everything, you know, they have that horrible app where you hire someone to get your shopping for you. And yeah. Like these- Amazon Flex is a thing. Target Flex is a thing. I just, yeah, the people are literally employed to go, Instacart is the one, and you employ a, a person to go around and physically do your shopping and, you know, it's all done through the app and there are like all of these exploitative conditions built into that. Under the current Australian system, a, a worker doing that kind of work is classified as an enterprise, a small business, not as a worker because that's how absolutely out of date and exploitative labour law has become in this country. Ben and I have talked about sham contracting before and the apps, the app businesses are just rife with it. Yeah. You are not an entrepreneur if you are being employed by an app to do work in exploitative labour conditions. That's not a thing. And I think people are increasingly waking up to this fact, right? That <sighs> it's And we're seeing it in New South That's Wales. That's three loud sighs <laughs> from me. On the psyometer today would be a three. Uh, we're seeing in New South Wales the two teachers' unions, you know, they're going on strike together. That's the Teachers' Federation. It's the first time ever, isn't it? Yeah, I think so, yeah. The Independent Education Union of New South Wales and ACT, they're taking action tomorrow, so the, the right across the sector. We've seen the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, the RTBU, take action. Um, the Public Service Association of New South Wales take action. So we're seeing that in the public sector, there's certainly this awakening to actually government does have a role to play here in setting wages, setting conditions, but also the flow and effect into the government-funded sector, right? And you know, you talk about apps, fam. Well, aged care, uh, disability, the NDIS, we know those two areas are rife with these sham contracting. And we've talked about it before and we'll keep talking about it as long as it's a problem. Um, I promise I will keep campaigning against <laughs> capitalism until it is finished. Well, it, it's not just campaigning against capitalism. It's campaigning against the exploitation. You know, there are there are people who are genuinely sole traders who, you know, you and I, we, we've chosen portfolio careers because it gives us flexibility and we're able to earn decent livings doing that. We're not, um, you know, we both have master's degrees. We, we, our education goes beyond a certificate three. We're not uh, locked into a government set price guide or at the whimsy of a uh, foreign private equity backed uh, platform uh, that we can't even call on a line if something goes wrong. You know, that's the sort of thing where we're seeing people who are personal care assistants in aged care and disability support, you know, literally have no one to call if something goes wrong. Literally, I saw some stuff on Facebook where people were talking about trying to get together a class action against one of these platforms because they just had client after client cancel last minute. They had no recourse to get paid. They had no income for weeks at a time. Uh, and you know the platform just wouldn't wouldn't engage with them about it. Um, so it's interesting to see that workers are, are using 
technology to organise against technology. Um, but we know that the Labor government is much more conscious that these funded sectors, childcare is another one, where increasingly you've got private providers using public funds to provide a, what is actually a public good. And there's other community services as well, right, where workers really are reliant on the funding parameters government sets and then whatever barbarism uh, an employer uh, intermediates. So if it's a proper employer, often you know, you'll find employers employ people in those sectors. They tend to have decent terms and conditions. They tend to be unionised as well. But then when they are on a platform, a contracting platform, you find they're not unionised, the terms and conditions are entirely Wild West. I think Bill Shorten even referred to them as cowboys mm. at one point. You know, it's it's really uh, – and it has a knock-on effect about wages right across the economy because it sets up what people's expectations should or shouldn't be about job security and wages and, and how they can be treated. Oh, that's the worst part is people thinking it will never get better. That it'll, that's the dog being cute, um, that it'll never get better. I mean, I just want to remind everybody, and yes, we say it on the show, infin- like ad infinitum because it remains consistently true. If your employer is scared of negotiating with a union, you should be really scared of that employer. Yeah. Because they do not have your best interests as an employee at heart or the best interests of any of their employees at heart. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really true. I think that's uh something, you know, people need to take into account. If if your boss says you don't need a union here or we don't need the union here or we're all one big family, those are all red flags. Like every worker needs a union. I'm a member of a union. Um, I'm a member of two unions. There you go, um, and and we both have, as we've as we've said before, portfolio type careers, um, because collectively we can still get better outcomes uh, as being being in a union than not. So look, what does it mean? What does all this mean? It means that we're going to have disputed territory on how wages are set, the 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 the, the mechanics behind. Wage setting, I think, are going to be really a key focus for this upcoming summit. I mean, I note that, you know, the Labor government has said they want to fix bargaining. Obviously, the ACTU has said they want to fix bargaining. Um, We've seen, uh, perhaps accidentally, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry say they want to fix bargaining. Uh, Now, with the comments from the RBA and comments from people like Ian Harper, there's clearly a, a message there that the way wages are set across the economy and in enterprises and in industries has to be looked at and addressed. And primarily, you know, we've got record profits. Profits were up 18% last year, the largest proportion of GDP in history. Wages are the lowest proportion of GDP. Inflation is going up. Wages are still less than half the rate of inflation. So clearly the issue is that there's not enough strength behind driving up wages. Clearly there's far too much power on the employer, capital, profit-driven side, and that's going to take some rebalancing, isn't it? It's going to take massive amounts of rebalancing, but we can be part of the rebalance. 
like joining a union and encouraging other people to join the union as well. Like if you have become a union member, maybe because you listen to the show. Uh, we love hearing those stories. We, lo- we absolutely love hearing those stories and given the fact that Ben and I don't exactly feel like we're winning the game of life this week given the whole coronavirus thing, it's those little uh, anecdotes and, and messages that really bring a lot of joy to our otherwise virus-sodden existence. If you have joined a union uh, and you are confident in that decision, spread the gospel in the workplace, encourage other members to join, potential members to join, build the collective power of where you work, have the conversation with friends and relatives, perhaps recommend this show to them because it's only through that force of numbers that you can actually force the conversation for the the structures around wages in this country to be one which is centred on the people who earn them. Absolutely. And I think, Van, you know, Peter Dutton came out very strongly uh, sort of trying to condemn Sarah McManus, trying to condemn unions for for you know, not looking at what's going on in the US and how devastating inflation is over there and we have to be careful not to engage in a wage spiral. So he's sort of getting his marching orders from that camp in a way, if you like, that uh, that uh, wage spiral boomer camp, let's, let's call it that. I just imagine he has some like office junior whose job is to sit up when the rest of us have all gone to bed. Some poor hapless Peter Dutton staffer is made to sit up and just watch Fox News in the United States on cable television and write down talking points because that seems to be the entirety of his policy conception at this point. And I'd like to do a special shout out to Senator Holly Hughes, a woman who fully embraces the cliche of being a nasty Tory, who's been insisting that school teachers are Marxists spreading, you know, like vicious lies about climate change that make people hate the Liberal Party. And every time she says that, I'm reminded that these vicious Marxists that she's so terrified of are people like me. Yeah. And the idea that someone like me, who, as you know, is a quiet middle-aged woman who lives in a small country town, does a podcast with her partner and, you know, is quite committed to the analysis of the capitalist system provided by Carl marks in his, you know, opus of work. I, I, lo- I love to think that I'm that terrifying, like that I could possibly line a cut her to death or maybe <laughs> bake some cookies that would instill fear of her in nighttime and the way that I go about my life. But they have been running this culture war nonsense from the United, oh, schools are out of control, Marxist. I dream of there being more Marxist teachers. I wish I'd been taught by some. Would have been very handy and saved me a lot of reading. But we are where we are. But day after day and this whole wage spiral and it's coming and, you know, the doom saying from Peter Dutton, it's doom saying by proxy. It's been developed by somebody else in another country uh, and and the office junior is just writing down the well, talking point. I think, Van, it's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good point you make because we're seeing before our very eyes the failed states of America unravelling uh, or at least the, the covers coming off Certainly, the the dying days of the of the Trump um, administration in the U.S. and the culture war that he basically ran on and continues to run on. Really, he is the front runner for the twenty twenty four Republican nomination. He is still at this point, right? Yep. And and these talking points about um, wage spirals that's coming from the U.S. for about teachers that's come from the U.S. 
And obviously we've seen just in the last week, and you've had a, a very successful article in The Guardian about the Supreme Court of the United States and its decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, which of course had guaranteed women the right to abortion, uh, access abortion in America. Uh, but we're seeing this unraveling now with the January 6th hearings, right? Trump Trump tried to build this mystique of being the, the genius playing four-dimensional chess, and it turns out he was really just a violent uh, thug throwing things at walls, trying to grab steering wheels when the secret when the um, Secret Service wouldn't take him where he wanted to go, letting people with AR-15s into his final rally because they were going to march on the Capitol when they were fully armed. Like these, this testimony that's coming out is shocking, right? Oh, it is. It's amazing. So the the context of what's going on in America is the the sort of bold neoliberal vision that the American conservative movement hitched itself to in the 1980s under Reagan was about an economic transformation and this sort of radical free marketeering. Americans have always been into a bit of unrestrained capitalism, which is why, you know, they mass murdered the indigenous population to seize land and, you know, the Wild West mentality, and embraced, you know, and embraced slavery. I mean, yeah. these were, these are at the heart of the American colonial project, and, and which was based on making as much money as possible. You know, it, I don't really trust a country with a history of legal slavery to determine the frame by which I understand wages and conditions in the workplace. Quite frankly, I think that for all of us would be a massive error. Yeah. And that that project of sort of infinite expansionism has its sort of manifestation in radical neoliberalism, you know, this uh, this mantra of small government and no regulation and corporations being able to do whatever they want, literally whatever they want. Corporations have effectively been given personhood in the United States by uh, a previous uh, Supreme Court ruling. Yeah. Um, and... The, issue, the the way that the American conservative movement held itself together was at the same time a sort of traditional base of the Republican Party, the like, you know, rural communities, a lot of yeah. whom depended on government largesse in order to continue. Farm subsidies in particular. Farm subsidies and defence contracts. Yeah. Like don't be fooled that America is some kind of massive small government yeah. free speech. Like it's- so, Silicon Valley is very small. Yes. It's yes. not the entire United States. No. It, Wall Street is very small. It yes. It is not the entire United States. No. And there are, of course, entire communities who have the right to vote and full of white people whose rights are not impinged by acts of Republican mm. governments um, who are relying on, on government in various ways. The way they sort of got away with uh, outsourcing, offshoring, factory closures, globalisation was by hitching their economic wagon to radical social conservatism and you had the emergence of the moral majority, which was, you know, this radical political movement. didn't always used to be like this in the United States. Abortion only really became an issue when Roe versus Wade was decided by the Supreme Court in the 1970s. And you had a conservative movement where you had your free marketeers and your radical neoliberals on one side and these 
absolute extremist religious religious fundamentalist conservatives on the other demanding things like um, the outlawing of abortion and the banning of drag queen story hour and what we would consider to be culture war issues. And culture war issues have been really handy for the Republicans because they do, quite frankly, disgusting economic things and blow up a culture war at the same time. So someone in whose interest it does not serve to um, massively cut taxes or uh, for the rich or cut social security or cut, you know, the threadbare education spending, education spending or any of those other things, uh, distracted by a polarising cultural war issue that demands you take a moral position on, do you think it's appropriate we should have drag queens reading stories to five-year-old children? Yeah. You know, personally, yes, I actually think that's quite healthy for children. I think children being exposed, greatest diversity of people as possible is quite good for them, actually. But my opinions are not shared by people in conservative parts of rural America. But, but so, man, how, how does this then lead to Trump? Because Trump- you know, multiple times divorced, reality TV star, um, sure, maybe on the free marketing side, but, you know, bankrupted more often than he was a billionaire, certainly not part of the, the quote-unquote moral majority, but yet these people swung in behind Trump, right? Because the thing about waging culture war for so long, and they've been doing it for four decades or five decades, is that you create culture warriors, warriors whose sense of identity is based in the performance of cultural ritual and behaviour. One of the things I discovered in my book, um, QAnon and On, was that this image that a lot of Australians, a lot of Americans have of who Trump voters are, is that they're these sort of poor rural um, you know, people displaced by globalisation, like people mm. with poor education, and and that's not true. Like Trump voters, there was an article appeared recently that said the single largest determinator of if you are a Trump voter is being a member of a member of a homeowners association. So it's more of a, a middle class, small business, professional class phenomenon. And these sort of culture warriors, like I said, it, it's a it's a cultural community about the performance of virtue and uh, shared traditions and singing from the same songbook and the notion of an identity that's based in you recognise my cultural rituals and I recognise yours, we are the same. And Trump entered that with a plan to to further deregulate American business, to further cut taxes on the rich. Like he passed trillion-dollar tax cuts for the richest Americans and, you know, created opportunities for price gouging, lack of regulation. The environmental stuff that Trump did was all about companies being able to continue uninhibited on the path to profit without any consideration for the environment, you know, again and again. But the trade-off was that Trump, who at one point was a Democrat and hung out with the Clintons and, you know, made his way in New York by playing the angles, you know, um, he suddenly went from being pro-choice to literally saying that he he thought that people who got abortion should be punished as criminals. Like he said that in an interview. And the deal that he made with sort of radical evangelical America who might have gone, oh, he has three ex-wives and he does these culturally nasty things, was he did a deal with their power brokers, people mm-hmm. like Franklin Graham and Leonard Leo from the Federalist Society and, of course, most prominently Mike Pence, mm-hmm. who represents that sort of 
evangelical nonsense um, politically and said, I will give you judges. I will give you uh, judicial appointments to the Supreme Court based on the lists that you provide to me. And it was, you know, I think everybody expected there would be one Supreme Court justice appointed under Trump. I remember reading that, you know, it was important that that 2016 election was going to be important because there would be at least one Supreme Court justice appointee that needed to be made because the the Republicans had held up um, the appointment of someone at the end of the Obama administration. Yeah, so Mitch McConnell, who's the leader of the Republicans Mm. in the Senate, Mm. um, who uh, had control of the Senate at the time, the Republicans had the numbers even though Obama was president, Uh, there was a vacancy. I think it's because... Oh, I can't. Scalia died. No, I think it, it was Scalia. I think it might have been Scalia who okay. died. Um, I can't. I will stand to be corrected. But uh, Obama wanted to appoint Merrick Garland, yeah. who is of course now the Attorney General under Biden. Wanted to appoint Mer- Merrick Garland, spotless judicial record. You know, progressive, reasonable, yeah. all these things. And Mitch McConnell made the argument because it was an election year that suddenly it was incredibly immoral for this to happen. No, 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 it was immoral and it wasn't fair before presidential election. part of his argument was these are lifetime appointments. These are lifetime appointments so to the Supreme So in an election Court. year you shouldn't do it because it's a lifetime appointment. Yeah. Now the election happened. The election happened. Trump, Trump won, won. Yes. And they moved pretty quickly to install. Neil Gorsuch. Who is a conservative. Oh, judge. yeah, absolutely hardcore conservative. Uh, so conservative for conservative in a way. You go, okay. Then, of course, more vacancies happened during the course. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of course, famously passed away. Yes, uh, and she was replaced by Amy Coney Barrett about eight days from memory before the election. So the logic which had held uh, the previous term, yeah. um, Mitch McConnell just- Just no longer applied. No, just no longer applied. Didn't matter. But there was a third appointment too, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, Brett Kavanaugh, who was the one credibly accused of sexual assault by multiple Christine- Multiple times. Oh, uh, yeah, multiple times. And there was an investigation that didn't really investigate and he famously cried and said he liked beer and he accused Kamala Harris, now the vice president, of being mean to him. And Christine Blasey Ford is like- She's not some rando. Like yeah. she went on the record, she testified, she gave her nut, she did all the things to say that he had assaulted her when she was a teenager, um, and he was appointed anyway. And of course, the the relevant issue is that Gorsuch, um, uh, Connie Barrett, and Brett kind of Kavanaugh, the three Trump appointees. They were, because they have to go through a Senate confirmation process, the Senate actually votes. The president puts a list forward and the Senate votes on whether to appoint them or not. And they go through these hearings and um, they were all asked their position on Roe versus Wade. Every single one of them said that it was settled law, that it was precedent, that as a conservative they wouldn't overturn precedent, and it was all lies. Yeah. And they specifically lied to Joe Manchin, who's the conservative Democrat, was the only Democrat to vote for uh, Kavanaugh, and to Susan Collins, who's a progressive uh, Republican from Maine, who had said she wouldn't support an anti-choice candidate, and she supported all of them, and Manchin supported Kavanaugh. And all three of them voted to overturn 
Roe versus Wade. Yeah, they all did. So they actively lied. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who you would know is yep. my favourite, um, oh, next to Elizabeth Warren, it's out of war. Yeah. Um, she has said that it's grounds for impeachment and they should be impeached because they lied. And in America that is an impeachable offence because the moment they had the opportunity, they they had the numbers and they went after it. Well, let's talk about the Supreme Court. We'll come back to some of the January 6th stuff and Trump a bit more because the the Supreme Court, I mean, Roe versus Wade, you know, was settled law for 50 years. Yeah. It was settled law. It was a right. And I think Joe Biden has come out and said, for the first time ever we've seen the Supreme Court of, America, of the United States of America take away an established right from people um, from half the population, from more than half the population. Yeah. And it's a pretty um, remarkable thing, but these these fundamentalist activist judges are not – this isn't the only thing they've done recently, is it? No. So uh, the state of New York had a – had a law because states make can make their own laws in the yeah. United States in various contexts. Um, federal law overrides state law, which is why Roe is relevant. Yeah. Um, so the state of New York had a prohibition on the open carry of weapons. Yep. Which we, you, people like you and I, and being, weapons. We're talking about firearms and assault rifles. Yeah, assault rifles. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, the Supreme Court has overridden that. The Supreme Court's defence of their overruling of Roe versus Wade was that the decision should be returned to the states, but they took away a decision made by a state in the case of New York um, legislating against open carry. That's not the only thing they've done. They've made a ruling that federal money, federal taxation revenue, uh, should be able to go to private religious colleges in the way that it goes to state colleges. Wow. They've argued that it was religious discrimination if you didn't. So that's actually an attack on the constitutional separation of church and state, which is the whole reason America exists, of course. <laughs> of course. Um, a big shout-out to Lauren Boebert, Republican from Colorado, who has given a speech that was reported on Twitter today where she called, said it was time to get rid of this separation of church and state junk and the church should tell the government what to do, but the government should not tell churches what to do, which is totally disturbing. Um, and then Henry VIII's nightmare. Yep. And they've also made a decision that prayer, that teachers in schools can instruct children in prayer, which is also against the separation of church and state. I found that case to be fascinating because the 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 guy who brought the case originally was a football coach mm-hmm. and and made the argument that you know, it was in his own time when he wasn't supervising children, uh, he was quietly praying, not impacting anyone else. The footage and the dissenting judges in the Supreme Court showed footage and, and attached footage to their dissenting report that showed him holding a football helmet, American football helmet, aloft on the 50-yard line, surrounded by his players who are all on one knee and, uh, engaged actively in prayer in front of a stadium full of people. If you've ever seen an American uh, American TV show about American high school football, imagine that scene but with the coach in the middle of the field holding a football helmet aloft and the children praying. That that was the quiet um the quiet in his own time prayer. And not only that, but he lost the case at every level. 
And then he moved states, which under the American system, from what I've read, means that he, he would have to go through the whole process again for it to go to the Supreme Court. But with these particular justices, they ruled that, no, no, we'll hear it anyway, even though we really technically probably shouldn't hear it because he's cha- he's moved states and therefore there's a due process issue. So it's as though these these judges, half of which at least were appointed by Trump, are proactively seeking out cases and opportunities to to enact this sort of fundamentalism. Yeah, well, they are. I mean, that's completely true. Absolutely true. I mean, you had the situation where I think it's between 15 and 22 American states had trigger laws ready to go for the moment that Roe was overruled. Like, I don't want people to think that this is just an accident and these were just, they just happened to be ultra conservative judges who heard this stuff. There has been a concerted cultural war campaign from deeply invested, like, ultra conservative hardcore far-right activists in the United States to pursue these judicial outcomes because what they know, and one of the reasons why the the cultural stuff is so important to understand in America is that America is a very big country with a very big population Mm. that is not that in which white conservative evangelical Protestants who have fashioned America in their own image through force of numbers over centuries are in decline. And the demographic reality is that, America is a multicultural country and multiculture is about to have the majority. Well, this as is, it does here now, as our latest census shows. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, actually, I, I was saying it before, I think children should be exposed to as many people as possible because it develops a comprehensive understanding of the world, empathy, tolerance, all these things that these dudes in America do not have. Again, one of the things I discovered when I was writing my book, I'm like, why do people believe things that are fundamentally untrue? They, they believe things that are untrue, like QAnon, like, you know, all of this nonsense yeah. that they go on with because it gives them a sense of meaning and yeah. social control and social bonds with one another that's very polarised. Like if you're not with us, you're against us. This is my vision of culture. This is what America looks like to me. And if you don't share it, you're not American. It's why they use the language of, you know, I'm a patriot. People who physically attacked the seat of the United States government on January 6, 2001 to prevent the peaceful transfer of power as demanded in the Constitution of the United States, threatening to kill the vice president who most of them had voted for, they call themselves patriots. People who literally stole flags from that building call themselves patriots. Patriots. More than eight hundred of them have been arrested, and they think they were wear they were wearing American flags as they did it. As they tried to ble- beat police officers to death, they were holding signs that said "Back the Blue." So overriding is their cultural obsession with what they have decided America is, and their meaning within it as patriots, as heroes, as Paul Revere, as mm. you know, like John Bunyan. You know these kind of cultural cliches of Americana that were never real at the time they were even created, you know, they created for propaganda purposes. They are so invested of this vision that only they are America that they are, that the rules don't apply to them. It reminds me of (laughs) uh, witch trials and, Mm. 
in in Europe when you know you went before like a, a civil court and the idea was that you had you could torture accused witches with impunity and if they died and were innocent that was at least better than letting a witch go free like this is the same mindset that they're in that it doesn't matter and people are like oh my god the supreme court justices lied it's like they have justified lying yeah. they have justified the abuse of legal process they have you know they are justifying overthrowing precedents settled law all of these things that are supposed to be the cornerstone of the american system because their cultural vision of america is what they're defending not the reality of the culture that america is and and are we seeing then in the the January 6th hearings, that, that Trump, despite any any kind of rational-minded person looking at Trump, you couldn't possibly say that he, here is a person who embodies the kind of conservative cultural uh, stereotypes. You know, he's a New York, uh, you know, uh, reality TV star, multiple marriages, Bankruptcies doesn't pay his people on time. Trust fund kid. Trust fund kid. Prep like school. The whole the whole show, right? Hangs out with Democrats. Um, like he's he's the antithesis, and yet he's positioned himself partly through the 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 kind of rebranding, I guess, that these fundamentalists have provided him in exchange for judge appointments, campaign assistance in in various races down the ticket for district attorneys and whatnot. And now we're seeing with the January 6th hearings, like the things that are coming out, somebody said that this that this was more like the hearings of a mobster than a former president. Um, that, you know, he, he had people sending witnesses messages going, Trump knows you'll be loyal. You know, that the, the 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 things that are coming out where he you know attacks a secret service uh, officer who refuses to take him up to the capitol so to inspire the rioters and I'm, the insurrection I'm, I'm going to give a very brief summation of how the January 6th committee yeah. uh, which is investigating what on earth happened that day and who was liable and it's I mean, a bipartisan committee it's right? a bipartisan committee Liz Cheney and um Adam Kinzinger who are full on republicans uh they but are anti trump republicans who actually believe in the they believe in the old ways when mm. republicans respected the constitution and things like that um nobody's accusing those people of being political moderates let me tell you on yeah. any level um they are on the committee because they're, I mean, they are trying to get to the, the truth. And it's cost them politically. Adam Kinzinger is not seeking re-election in Illinois and it looks as though Liz Cheney will get done in Wyoming. I saw that, in fact, in Wyoming she's been mailing- uh, Democrats. Yeah, conservative Democrats, trying to get them to register as Republicans to help her get the nomination again. Yeah, which is completely extraordinary. That, that never happens, right? That's no, she's not- a Chinese. She's Dick Cheney's daughter. Yeah. Like, like Dick Cheney, everybody remember. Oh, you may Iraq, know Dick Cheney. The yeah. guy who bombed Iraq, she's his daughter. Yeah. Like, that, anyway, so they're on the committee and she's the vice chair of the committee and she's been given quite a prominent role. And the way that these committees usually work in America is that they're bipartisan and everybody grandstands. Everybody auditions for president and gives big speeches and whatever. Yeah. That's not been happening. Her and Benny Thompson have just been bringing witnesses. They've been showing video. They hired a guy who makes television shows mm. to put together 
the footage so there could be like a comprehensive argument about what happened. And essentially it got down to this. The Republicans knew that Trump was in trouble because he'd totally mismanaged coronavirus, a million people were dying, the country was a disaster, economically total chaos. You know, it wasn't a miracle. It was all falling apart. They knew he was in trouble. And they knew because of coronavirus there would be a lot of mail-in ballots because Obviously, people weren't yeah. going to go in, but they also knew because they had cultured the issue of coronavirus and made it a my body, my choice when it came to wearing masks yeah. and things that Republicans were more likely to turn up to the ballot box to vote in person, whereas Democrats would send in mail-in ballots. Yeah. Republicans won't mandate masks, will mandate pregnancy. Yeah. yeah. They'll force you to give birth but not wear a mask. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so they- um, Essentially, they knew that what would happen on election night as the votes were counted, that there would be a re- what an illusory red wave that it had, that Trump would probably lead in a lot of the um, yeah. in a lot of the states that he would eventually lose because they would be physically counting Republican ballots before the mail-in ballots from Democrats came in, and of course that's what happened. But they used this this illusion of the red wave for Trump to get up and give these speeches because he just didn't want to accept that he could possibly lose um, to say that, oh, you know, it was all like it was all a lie and the Democrats had rigged the vote and it was all going to be rigged. He'd actually started with the rhetoric around rigging long before. I remember. Yeah. Watch out. They're going to steal the election. They're going to steal the election. They're going to do this. And and somebody said, is there any way – to prove that the election would not be rigged. And he said, oh, if I win. So the election went, <laughs> right, okay, sure, buddy. So that was the the window they had. And it's why he didn't concede an election night. In fact, he got up at 2 o'clock in the morning and gave this speech saying, you know, it's quite clear, uh, frankly, I did win, was yeah. his line. And meanwhile, Rudy Giuliani, who was, reports have suggested was quite drunk at the White House, was like, yeah, we're going to pursue our lawsuits and we're going to do all this. And they got together a team of crackpot lawyers and pursued these court cases mm. arguing total nonsense. One of the court cases insisted the ghost of Hugo Chavez was, like, controlling satellites from Italy to switch ballots and, like, crazy yeah. stuff, like stuff that was being discussed in, I can tell you this authoritatively, QAnon communities, like standard articles of faith in conspiracy communities were being regurgitated. The idea was this lawyer called John Eastman, who was another crackpot, turned up, and he had this idea that they could use – the down around the election to argue to argue with the state governments who arbitrate mm. their elections, like places like Georgia, for yeah. example, and say, right, we know that there are all these, we know there are discrepancies with the ballot, yeah. which were irregularities, not irregularities, fraud, problems, all this stuff. So the state government, Republican government, will step in, take control of the process, refuse the. Um, refuse the report to the government that there's this problem, the federal government there's this problem, and instead of the electors. Yeah, appoint its own electors. Appoint its own electors. So in America you vote for the you vote for someone who will vote for the president you want. It's completely electoral college system. The electoral college system. So there's like another sort of barrier in the way. And in some of some states, if not all of them, certainly in some of them, like Georgia, the state can the state has to verify or certify the electors to go and do the vote. Yeah. And and, and there the Trump strategy in the end, after all was said and done, basically boiled down to we're going to get the states to not certify 
the outcomes of the ballot, yep. but instead certify a new slate or a new group of electors who will who will elect Trump. Yeah. Therefore, it will be legitimate because the state sent the right electors, the correct electors. Yeah, the correct electors, the ones we chose for them to <laughs> yeah. keep us in power. Like it is fruitcake stuff. Yeah. But the whole noise around these lawsuits and everything else was to cast out on the integrity and sort of give a pretext to these state governments to do it. And, of course, the problem was they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it in Arizona and they yep. wouldn't do it in Georgia. I mean, and these are like gross Republicans, like Raffensperger and those guys in Georgia. They're not yeah. nice guys. They're not flying flags for drag queen story hour and no. greater empathetic values in children. No. That's not who they are. They're quite happy with the Supreme Court judges that Trump chose. Quite happy. And and despite and despite the phone call from Trump saying can you just find me? I just need you to find me 11,000 votes. You know, a phone call, which, by the way, is completely illegal and being investigated by another court in yeah. Georgia. They refused to do it. Yeah. Um, but have said that they would probably still vote for Trump anyway, which is enough to make me vomit in a bag. So this was the idea, was that you would that that the state governments would throw out the legitimately elected electors yeah. and replace them with these slates of electors that the Trump people had picked. And, of course, they refused to do it. And that meant that what was happening on January 6th was Trump was still desperately invested in this plan and was trying to pressure Mike Pence to use his vice presidential role because he hears all of the... Yeah, so the, the the role of the vice president in this is ceremonial yeah. and his job is to read out the electors from each state um, and how they voted in order to confirm that who the person who won the election. And and he took legal advice on this. He phoned for, Dan Quayle. He yeah. phoned George Former Bush, vice the president. first yeah. vice president, who's also from Iowa, and was like, oh, man, ooh, I'm being pre-. And Dan Quayle was like, are you nuts? Like, and Dan Quayle, of course, had to do this when Bill Clinton got elected, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, same situation, first time. Anyway, but Pence was, Dan Quayle was like, you can't do it, like no way. Yeah. And so Pence was like, well, yeah, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah, um, it's illegal. In the in the most spineless way possible, but he got there eventually. <laughs> and, of course, what happened on January 6th was Trump, who's increasingly desperate, was doing the, they had the event and the stop the steal yeah. um, because it was all about intimidating Mike Pence. Yeah. And it was about marching on the Capitol building to essentially lodge a coup to force Mike Pence. And you had all of those Republicans, all the really gross ones like yeah. um, Matt Gates and Paul Gosar and people like Louis Gohmert um, objecting to the um, – objecting to yeah. the slates of electors that have been put up, almost as if they were trying to create space and time for the mob to get through. I mean, this was the whole thing. And Trump in his speech at the Ellipse, which is the big mm. park where all the protesters were meeting, was making the point, we've got to show Mike Pence, like, I hope you find your courage, Mike, tweeting about it kind of thing. And what has come out in these hearings, amongst all the other things that went on, was that, that the Secret Service was making rally participants go through like a magnetron or something like a metal body, detectors. Metal detectors to see if they had knives or guns. Of course, they had knives or guns. So if they had knives or guns, they couldn't get into 
the uh, place with the, where yeah. Trump was speaking. Trump found out about this, and apparently, this is according to witness testimony today. And the witness today was Cassidy Hutchinson, who was an aide to Mark Meadows, who was Trump's chief of staff, like yeah. the most powerful person in the administration, essentially, under yeah. the president, and is the chief of staff. Um, and he was like, I don't, yeah, they're not here to kill me. Bring them in, and then we're all going to march on the Capitol. So, the then president, Donald Trump, was happy to have an armed mob march on the Capitol, knowing that they weren't going to kill him. They were definitely training their weapons on the other side. And, of course, Rudy Giuliani gave that speech about we're going to have trial by combat and Trump was like, we're going to go up there and fight like hell. And it turns out that Trump had been advised by White House counsel, a guy called Pat Cipollone, who the um, automatic... Uh, uh, closed caption yeah. robot has been calling Patsy Baloney, <laughs> um, which was an interesting thing that happened today. Poor Mike. Yeah, so but so Patsy Baloney was saying to Trump's people, he can't go to the Capitol. He was like, there are already yeah. like hundreds of ways he could be convicted for things like sedition or treason. He cannot participate in a demonstration like that. That is not a thing that can happen. So Trump's staff conspired to not have him go to the Capitol, which is what he really wanted to do. And he was put into the presidential car. And according to the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson, when he found out they weren't going to the Capitol, went absolutely nuts and tried to grab the wheel and choke the driver of the car. This is what she yeah, said under today, that she had been told this by people who were there. And that the Secret Service agent has never denied that that's He's never denied it, no. And yeah. so then what happened was he obviously went, back to the White House. But, of course, you had that period where nobody did anything, like no one in the administration took any action. You had people dying. You had people getting wounded. Um, police on the ground said that it was medieval, that unbelievable oh, footage. footage is unbelievable. Yeah, and the footage, there's footage that the public haven't seen, hasn't seen that's been shown in the January 6th committee hearings, which is terrifying, like body cam footage from police, like essentially yeah. being beaten to death, kind of just absolutely appalling. Anyway, so it turns out, and they all knew what was going on and they knew that Trump was supporting it. Trump had been told the mob was threatening to kill the vice president and it allegedly said, well, he deserves it and that he was refusing to call off the violence. Cassidy Hutchinson, who's only 26 years old, who was like a full light in the eye, she used to work for Ted Cruz, yeah. the world's most reprehensible human being. Like this is not some, oh, am I really a Republican? Like this is a full mega Republican. Uh, this girl, she said that she just she was disgusted by what she saw. She also talked about what's been called the ketchup testimony where um, when – Trump found out that Bill Barr, who was his attorney general, loyal yeah. lieutenant, had given a speech to the Associated Press, given a statement saying that there was absolutely no grounds for to conclude there'd been any fraud in the election, yeah. that, that it was just not significant, it was not a thing. When he found that out, uh, Cassidy Hutchinson um was aware of a disturbance in the White House dining room and went in to find Trump's valet cleaning ketchup off a wall in front of smashed plates and was told that when Trump had seen the bar interview, he had smashed up 
um, his lunch and thrown the plates. And it at wasn't the, wall. the first time. And it was, and under questioning from Liz Cheney said it wasn't the first time. So the, the picture that's been built is of a violent, unstable lunatic who was willing to organize a coup and work with absolute kooks to bring down the democratically elected government that replaced him. You also had Michael Flynn, who of course emerges as mm. a key character in my QAnon book. Um, Michael Flynn, retired general, who was a very Trump close aficionado. He was the one convicted of lying to the FBI, yeah. uh, who Trump pardoned, uh, who was hanging out with the Russians and all kinds of conversations. Um, he pled the fifth, which meant he maintained his right to remain silent. When he was asked directly by the committee if he supported the peaceful transfer of power, he refused to answer the question. <laughs> and this procession of statements that they've had and, of course, threats of violence against poll mm. workers and all of these other things that have gone on. What's particularly disturbing is Cassidy Hutchinson worked for Mark Meadows, yeah. the chief of staff, who did nothing to stop what was going on, saying Trump had sort of made up his mind. What's come out is that in the wake of the election in the United States, Donald Trump was fundraising off the, oh, we've got to fight the steel yeah, and yeah. and because, you know, some horrible person put me on a Trump mailing yeah, list yeah. and I was every getting- Every day we're getting emails. Oh, hundreds of them every yeah. day. And he raised like a quarter of a billion dollars. Yes, he raised $250 million. Yeah. Well, grants from that money were paid off as cons- consultancy fees. Um, I don't know the precise term they were used, to people like Mark Meadows, who were also putting up their hands for pardons. So all of the people who were around him facilitating an illegal series of decisions, a series mm. of decisions, were people he had, he personally paid off and dangled like preemptive pardons in front of, like abused the pardon power of the presidency. Of the presidency. And there were people who were paid. Steve Bannon was pardoned by yeah. Trump. You know, Flynn was pardoned by Trump. They were conv- like convicted felons yeah. um, and pardoned by Trump. And it is absolutely extraordinary. <coughs> Liz Cheney today at the, at the end of Cassie Hutchinson's testimony read out the th- some threats and, you know, veiled mm. threats that had been issued to people who were testifying in front of the committee because there have been a bunch of aides and yeah. various other people who have given testimony um, so, so as not to be in contempt of Congress because it's illegal yeah. to to not appear if you are subpoenaed, um, where they had said, oh, you have to remember who you're loyal to and what this could cost you. Like it's full on mob language yeah. around you've got to consider who your friends are kind of thing. And it's genuinely terrifying. Like the former president of the United States was one of the key organisers of a coup. I mean, that's what the evidence is saying. It certainly looks like it. And I think, you know, in that context, when you think about the three Supreme Court justices he's appointed and, and the kind of culture wars that America is exporting to places like Australia, the UK, parts of Europe, it, it's a disturbing phenomenon that that that's where it leads to. Where it leads to is undemocratic, anti-democratic, uh, proto-fascism, uh, overthrowing democratically elected governments. And of course, America has midterm elections at the end of this year. There'll be another presidential election in 2024. Trump is a front runner for that nomination for the Republican Party. Uh, there is a lot at stake uh, in not just America, but around the world. Oh, absolutely. There is a land war in Europe. 
You know, it is support from the United States which has enabled Ukraine to hold out against expansionism by autocratic, undemocratic Russia for this long. And we all know that Trump was very cosy with the Russians and not issuing weapons. In fact, he cut military support. He cut military support to Ukraine when Ukraine needed it. Yeah. I mean, that was the basis of the first impeachment was Trump on a phone call to Zelensky making military aid conditional on Zelensky helping him discredit Joe Biden. That was literally the first cause of impeachment. Like these things aren't separate. They're not (laughs) happening in a vacuum, you know, and this is the thing. People have to remember that... The people who are behind the Trump movement, the people who are calling mm. the shots who are invested in it, your Steve Bannons and your Leonard, Steve Bannons and Leonard Leos and, you know, the rest of these just disgust, Tucker Carlson, the, these disgusting human beings who take on, you know, activist roles within that movement, they do not support democracy, right? And they also know that their days are numbered. Their days of being have any kind of avenue of power are going to change because the composition of America is changing. Yeah. And it's rapidly changing. They essentially know they have to strike now. And the lesson that they offer us is not is they're not trying to win the argument. They're not trying to win the majority. They're concentrating their resources to the choke points where they can get what they want anyway. Because what came out this week is that 60% of Americans, 60%, that's an overwhelming majority, 60% of Americans support the legal right to abortion and did not want Roe versus Wade overturned. In a democracy, that's supposed to count. These guys don't care. They know they cannot win on the issues in an actual functioning democracy. So they are targeting the institutions to capture, to get their own way anyway. And shame does not work. You know, people just going, oh, what you've done is really bad. How could you do it? It's so immoral. It's not the 19th century. Nobody really believes they're going to go to hell anymore. That's not a thing. You know, they just see rewards in earthly life, like a million dollar payout from Donald Trump's Stop the Steal money and pardons and, you know, promotions and the rest of it. Like they do not care. The only thing that stops them is choking the institutions that they are trying to capture. Look, I think it's really, it's going to be an evolving conversation that we're going to have to keep coming back to because there are so many points along the way here. And as you say, those, those choke points of power are so important and where decisions are made and who makes them it is important. We've talked about it before on this show. Who gets appointed to what and who gets to make what decision is important. It's not just one election day. It's actually democracy is an ongoing, everyday project. You can get involved in it through your union. You can get involved in it through community organisations. You've got to stay involved. You've got to stay actively engaged in America, even more so where you don't have compulsory voting. But, of course, Van, we have to end the show on good news because that's the kind of show we are. We are. We are that kind and, of show. And this is... This is good news, and I know some people will go, "Oh, but Ben, this isn't very, this isn't very positive environmental news." But it is positive environmental news, and I say that because the Climate Energy Finance Director Tim Buckley says it is a bold move, and on that basis, I think Queensland imposing a windfall profits royalty on coal is good news. It's good environmental news, and it's also a good demonstration of when you have the right people in the right positions making decisions, you can change the shape of what's happening. Yeah. Because in Queensland, they have imposed this uh, new new uh, tax. It's a tax on companies extracting coal out of Queensland and selling it overseas. Uh, and 
Tim Buckley, the director of the Climate Energy Finance, says it's not a windfall gain that the companies had anything to do with. It was entirely due to war profiteering using public assets. And of course, the Queensland Resources Council CEO, Ian McFarlane, who, by the way, is himself a former Liberal National Party minister uh, for resources, that's never mentioned in any of the stories where he's brought up, which I think is very, very interesting. One would think it was a relevant detail, Ben. You, you would think so. Uh, he says it's uh, uh, no good, but it basically brings in- No a- way a former LNP <laughs> resources minister who now works for a coal company thinks paying tax on profits is no good. But hmm. it's a progressive tax. So it's based on how much you take out and how much you what the price that you get for it is. So yes, you can end up paying thirty percent on uh, if you if you're getting two hundred and twenty five Australian dollars a ton, uh, you'll pay thirty percent. If you're getting three hundred Australian dollars a ton, you'll pay forty percent. Basically, it means that the more demand there is for coal, the more money will go to Queensland. Queensland, of course, one of the states that has um, its own state energy companies, massively investing in solar, massively investing in green hydrogen, massively investing in battery technology in Queensland. Electric vehicle superhighways. Electric vehicle superhighways. So here it is actively taxing fossil fuels that are being sent overseas to be burned in other countries to generate more emissions. Uh, and that money will then be used uh, in part to fund renewable energy infrastructure in Queensland and for Australia and reduce emissions here and, of course, disincentivize countries that may not want to pay extra for Australian coal. And, and it's, a, it's a simple and effective measure. It's progressive, so it, it doesn't mean that if you're a struggling coal company- Yeah, poor, know, oppressed, struggling You know, and coal the price extractor. is low, it doesn't mean- you know, it's not medieval style. We're taking eight sheep, even if you've only got eight sheep. It, it's literally the more you're making, the more you'll pay, as opposed to what has been, and still is in some states, I should say, a flat rate of X amount, you know, in some cases not very much per tonne uh, as a royalty that gets paid to the state. This kind of system I think is good. Uh, clearly, uh, so does Tim Buckley think it's good. And congratulations to Cameron Dick, the Treasurer of Queensland, of course, Anastasia Palaszczuk, Premier of Queensland, uh, for implementing progressive taxation on fossil fuel exports. And, you know, I always think if countries as diverse in their systems as as, uh, Qatar and Norway can effectively tax fossil fuels, surely we can find a pathway and Queensland is showing us that way. It's been a long episode. Hopefully you feel like we do, that we've made up a little bit for missing out on the weekend wrap. We went deep dive on the American situation, which thank you, Van, for giving us all that information. Like it was really, I found it, I learned stuff. I hope people listening uh, found it interesting as well. I'm sure they did. We do need to give a shout out to our cadre and our Extending the Reach followers because we do have we have some new cadre uh, supporters this week. And, of course, our cadre supporters, our Extend the Reach supporters, our Buck a Week supporters, they go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. They give once off or regularly if you want to become a cadre or Extend the Reach. And it helps us advertise the show to more people, get more listeners, get the message out there, hopefully – uh, it, we we know we're reaching people who 
would not normally listen to something perhaps that they would consider left-wing. We know people who put it on in the car, but they're not necessarily left-wing family members. I <laughs> uh, got a message the other day. <clears throat> somebody put it on the car while he was driving his mum to work every day, and by the end of the week she had joined her union. We love hearing it. <laughs> I just thought that We was absolutely great. love hearing it. And also I'd like to think, you know, when they do talk about those scary Marxists and those evil socialists, they're literally talking about Ben and I. And if you can check out Instagram feeds for how Marxists live today. <laughs> Bit of baking, spending a lot of time with my mum, love my dog. You know what I mean? Like- just ordinary Aussie people doing ordinary Aussie things. So our cadre. Okay, at Jane Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bromman, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, and a slap from Germanicus there, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, at Lee Archer, Linda Cartwright, at Leanne Shingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3, McCabe, Curran Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narunga Man, John Sharp and Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson slash Red, White and Blue Lou, Christine Cole. And now extending the reach supporters. Stuart Munn, Adrian Valente, Matsritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nye, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Vicky Hanna at Knot. Love your work. Love yours too, mm. buddy. At Didham's. Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannum, Bill Collis, Moira Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Belinda Bravo, Sandy Honan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Eliane and Andrew, Ivis Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kia Patterson, Lizette Twizzle, Bunkum Basher, at Katie, sorry, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, at Not Sandy B, Melody Patterson and Renee McGee. You make us possible and i want to finish this episode by saying solidarity to all women and everybody else affected by the appalling abolition of, of the roe versus wade president in the united states uh, your australian sisters brothers and others are with you um and i just want to say thank you to everybody again who has supported ben and i since we've been so very ill it's really meant the world to us it really has and for those who are in victoria and in melbourne this weekend, there will be a rally uh, in support of those impacted by the overturning of Roe versus Wade uh, and a show of solidarity as well uh, for those who can make it. Uh, do check out, I think you can check out uh, Victorian Trades Hall Council or Vic Unions for more details and there'll be lots of information available online. Check out all of our social media. Check out Van's latest article on that topic. And I'm on TikTok now as well. <coughs> I am everywhere. We are everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. Until I talk to you again on Sunday, love you, Vanny. Love you too. And I love you too, Germanicus. We will feed you right now. Bye. Bye.